as um, some of you know, our family is uh, struggling from something akin to the flu. I don't know. Everybody always claims they got the flu. I don't know if I got it or not. I know if I, if it's not the flu, it's something that I don't ever want to get again. And uh, it's not nice to you. Amy's at home. That's why she's at home. She she wanted to be here uh, today <clears throat> to be with you and worship. And uh, Hannah Grace is home being mama uh, to Noah, who's recovering from being sick. And So we've kind of had a bout of it. Uh, but uh, Amy said, you really going to go try to preach tomorrow? Because literally yesterday I was laying in the bed sweating and having the chills and trying to study and look over things. And I don't know if it's spiritual or not, but I said, you know, all of my heroes in the pulpit uh, would have preached with the flu. And I'm not going to be a wimp. <laughs> so I'm going to preach. And I'd say that jokingly a little, but also to say it's the seriousness of the hour that we're in. Um, the level of importance that I place on being in this moment with you, that I'm here. If I didn't think it was important, trust me, I'd rather be at home taking some dope and sleeping. <laughs> but I have refrained from taking any medications for the last uh, day or so, so I'd be clear as clear in my mind as I could be to present a message to you because I believe that the Word of God is life and breath and food for the soul. It's food for my soul. I think it's food for your soul. And it's worth suffering a little to do it. And who am I to say I'm suffering? I've got the flu. Calvin preached for some time with kidney stones that would not pass to the point that he would often faint or come near fainting in the pulpit and would have to be helped down to his seat and helped into the pulpit to present the message. And he didn't preach once a Sunday. He preached five times a Sunday morning with kidney stones. He lectured every day in the university with kidney stones. So like I said, far be it from me to be a wimp about a little sniffle. You know, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say first before I uh, deliver this message, and that is uh, you struggle when you um, are it, such love is expressed to you by a group of people to thank them. The struggle is not to say thank you. The struggle is to make it meaningful and not trite. Because really, if I tell you thank you for what all you've done for my family in the last months and culminating in this last week, it just doesn't sound like enough. And so uh, you'll have to accept uh, the fact that I just don't have the words to tell you thank you enough for what you mean to me and to my wife. The source of strength that you've been for us, the prayers that you've offered on our behalf before the throne and the acts of love that you've acted out, um, they, they leave me with nothing to say really to explain we came in Friday night all sniffling and begging for a place to lay down and were overwhelmed at the work the ladies of this church did in our home. Uh, a little spooked out that everything had been gone through and uh, <coughs> organized, but, uh, but that's okay. Because, uh, well, first of all, we don't have anything to hide from you. If we do, there's deeper problems. And two, 
because uh, you're our family. And so if you see our dirty underwear, it's okay. Um, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we're thankful. Uh, the food, the prayers, the calls, the cards, uh, the gifts. Uh, I just, I don't know. There's nothing else to be said except that the grace of God has been poured out on us through you. So we thank our God upon every remembrance of you uh, in every situation, offering up prayers of thanksgiving on your behalf and saying, God, count it to their credit um, in the kingdom. And so I can't replace or reward you, but I know my Father can. And so I've asked him to reward you, not in just in this life, but in the kingdom. And I trust he will. Uh, also to uh, tell you that we did have a, a rent, believe it or not, even though we were sick, restful time and are energized to be back here at work in this place. And so uh, we're going to probably vomit a lot on you spiritually over the coming weeks. You'll just have to try to choke it down um, because, uh, you know, one thing I've learned through this experience is there's not a lot of time in this life to waste. Um, some people get nine minutes and some people get 90 years, and in light of eternity, both are a breath. They're a mere breath. And so the fact that we would waste any time playing games, trying to be trite or superficial, uh, is a blasphemous statement before a holy God. He has granted us years when He only uh, had... Uh, uh, if he had been done what was just, we wouldn't have been granted any years. And so uh, I'm not going to waste a lot of time pedaling around and trying to ease into something. We'll just hit it straight forward. It may be hard to take that way. Maybe God will soften it from my mouth to your ears and heart, but if it needs to be, and if not, he'll just punch it right in there. Some lessons have to be learned the hard way. They can't be learned uh, the easy way. I've come to understand that. And so I told the people in Sunday school that there are some messages that have kind of ruminated in me for five or six months now that uh, I'm getting the opportunity today to do both of them, really. And there's some more, but we're just going to do two today because that's how much time we've got allotted to us um, for your sake and for mine. Two years ago, February the 15th, actually, 2006, um, a very important man in my life was diagnosed with prostate cancer. <coughs> On the eve of uh, going into that surgery to remove the cancer, he took the time to instruct his congregation on ways not to waste your cancer. And he released it to the world on his, on his website in the form of, Don't waste your cancer. And it was a taste and see from Dr. John Piper. Some of you might have read that. Ten ways not to waste your cancer. And it struck me then, and it still strikes me today, that a man who's suffering, who's in discomfort at some level, that's why he went to have the test run that he did, as pain and swollenness and all the things that come with that disease, and then the dread of going under the knife and possibly dying, even though he had the cancer removed, would take the time 
to think for his people, to be concerned for his congregation and for Christians around the world. In other words, it struck me and it should strike you as odd that a person didn't turn inward but turned outward during their time of trial and suffering. In 2006, I could not wrap my mind around how that's possible. And then September the 21st of 2007 occurred in my life. And I had a geneticist, one of the finest in her field, with great expertise who told me very cold and plainly, your daughter suffers from what we call a genetic anomaly, trisomy 13. She has no brain. She cannot survive outside the womb if she makes it to birth. You have no hope of taking your daughter home from the hospital. And immediately almost, my wife and I, our thoughts turn to you and to this community and to some way in which we might live our lives as an open book that you might learn and see from a close distance, singed by the fire of our struggle and prepared for your own struggles. So last week, as I sat on the top of a mountain in a condo at night with a fire burning, I thought, I need to bring closure to this event for our church. It's been a traumatic event for us and for you. How can I bring an end to it? Well, I wrote down nine ways that you don't waste the death of your daughter. I don't claim originality, obviously, because it's the same format that Dr. Piper used. There are similarities because our doctrines are very similar. Our beliefs are very similar. But these are my reflections over the last six months. Trust me, they're my heart cries to my Father in heaven and for you on your behalf as you prepare for your suffering. And I want to say that clearly. I said it in Sunday school, and I want to reiterate it today. Again, you, if you are in Christ in this world, will suffer. It is not an if. It's a when. When. And you say, how can you get that out of the Scripture? And I say, because Jesus said, if they persecuted the master of the house, how much more will they persecute his servants? Jesus often taught, everywhere he taught in the Gospels, that his disciples were to expect and prepare for persecution and trial. Paul taught throughout his epistles to his churches that trials and sufferings are to be expected in this life. Even to the point that I would say to you, in your journey of this life, if there's no persecution, suffering, and trial, serious questions need to be asked about your faith. Because all of those God loves, He chastens. That's what Hebrews 12 says, by the way. Every child of God's, He loves, He chastens. 
That's one form of suffering and trial is the chastening hand of God. Paul taught us that these current sufferings are laying up for us a weight of glory in heaven. So without the suffering, is there a weight of glory awaiting you? And in 2 Peter, he said that we were to submit ourselves under our Creator's hand, suffer in the name of Christ, and trust that He will, in the end, make all things for His own glory right. So we, we are to expect suffering. We are to prepare for suffering. So this is my feeble attempt to let you see through my heart and my experience suffering and how it should be used so that it's not wasted. Romans 8 (coughs) was read aloud. Barry read it for you. I won't read it all again, but I do want to call your attention to some things quickly, and then I want to get into the nine reasons. Verse 1, he says, No condemnation. Underline that. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not, there's less condemnation. There's only a little condemnation. That statement is, there's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you suffer... It is not condemnation that you are suffering. Okay? That's not one of the nine reasons. That's just a brute fact. For the believer, condemnation is not being experienced. You're not condemned during your trials, during your suffering. Then drop down. There's there's a lot here, but we won't cover it all for time's sake. 28. He's following the same line of reasoning. All things. Underline that. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. (coughs) All things. Some manuscripts even read, God works all things together for good. All things. That means this morning if you have, and I don't want to make this trivial, but if you have a physical illness, if you have a financial struggle, if you have family chaos and rebellion, if you have a marriage that's on the rocks, if you have a loved one who is about to die or has died recently, if you've had a child within the last few days or expecting a child in the next few days, if you've gotten a promotion at work, if you've been praised and adored by your wife or husband this morning, all of those things, good and bad in our experience, are for our good according to God and His purpose. All of them. Equally good. Equally good. That means that when I had Hannah Grace and Noah and Sophie, all three of them were equally good for me and Amy. All of them. 
That means the demotion at work and the promotion at work, they're equally good for you and your family if you're called according to His purpose. Now, I don't mean to sound trite with that. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. I understand an experience of your life at this moment. It doesn't feel as good. But what I'm saying is eternally it is just as good for you. Both the good and the bad. So much so that we might even begin to say, what really is good and bad? It's all subjective, isn't it? Because as bad as my life may have felt for the last few months, it's not as bad as some people have it. Let's get real. John Owen one of the greatest theologians of all time, buried 11 children. He preached the funeral of 11 children. That's bad. And there are mothers that woke up this morning in Kenya whose shelter and home have been burned down because of their faith and they've been driven underground because of their faith and they don't know where their next meal's coming from. Their experience is much worse than mine. Mine may be worse than yours, but in the end, it's all subjective, isn't it? And if we'll turn our eyes from the subjective to the objective and say all of these things are for our good and worship God through them, then our perspective changes. And that's when you run into those who are imprisoned and beaten and shipwrecked and starved and stoned for the name of Christ who then say, those are just minor, trivial, momentary things that are passing away which are laying up for me a great weight of glory in heaven. (coughs) It's a matter of perspective gained through staring into the greatness of our God. So all things, I wanted you to underline that. And then that chain of truth in verse 29, which we're not going to camp on for time's sake, but I will quickly just say, <clears throat> we are being conformed into the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what He knew about us, and that's what He set out to do. He predestined, the Word says there, foreordained it, prepared it beforehand. You find these kind of words in the definitions of what predestined means. Before time, he did this. He said, they'll be conformed in the image of my son. And then he set out to do that. How did he do it? He called us. He justified us. He'll glorify us. And look at the definite statements Throughout this passage, those he foreknew, he predestined to be like his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called them. It's not he predestined them and then maybe he called, and some he called and some he didn't. All the ones he predestined, he called. All of them. You see that? That's not reading into the text, that's reading the text. Okay, some people get upset about this passage. But this is just the Word of God. And those whom He called, 
He justified. Definite statement. It's not that he called them and then maybe based on some other act they were justified or not. No. He knew them. He predestined them. He called them. And now he has justified them. And look at the last one. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified? Did you see that? It's in past tense, isn't it? Did you know that your glorification is not up for grabs? If you're a child of God, it's not a question mark over that statement. It's not maybe if, you, if things work out the right way and you make the right choices, then you'll be glorified one day. No, it's a done deal in God's book. And you say, how does this have anything to do with the suffering you've been telling us you're going to talk to us about? Let me tell you something. When you understand that God's work in your life is not circumstantial, but objective, true, and finished, whatever you have to go through in this life is a mere moment compared to eternity. Do you understand that perspective? I hope you do. It's my belief that those who suffer become more confident in who God is, in His nature, in His character, and what He has done for us in Christ. Far from shaking my confidence in the sovereignty of God, what I've experienced over the last six months has ratified that in my life written it in stone, made it unshakable to the point I'm pretty intolerable of anyone who doesn't view our God as sovereign over all things. And that's my own sin. I understand that. But over the months, I have received emails and loving calls from people in my family and friends who want to try to convince me that the things that Amy and I have gone through are not from God, but from Satan or from just the general randomness of the world. And they believe this is comfort to you somehow. There's no comfort in those things. To say Satan took your daughter, there's no comfort in that. That sin took your daughter, there's no comfort in that. That it was random chance that caused this to happen. There's no comfort in that. People who believe that have no hope. And they live in fear. It's hard enough when you believe the right things to keep the right perspective. When you believe the wrong things, you have no hope. You have no hope. Monday night when my son began to run a fever, my nature kicked in. See, my daughter just died. Now my son's running a high fever. And he's kind of in that state of in and out, in and out. You've been there if you're a parent. And my natural gut response was, oh no, it's going to happen again. See, fear creeped up. But immediately, these verses came to my mind. And I didn't say, my son's not going to die. 
What I said is, if God so wills that my son even die, it's for my good. And it's for my wife's good. And it's for my five-year-old daughter's good. It's for our church's good. It's for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And so I went in the other room after giving him some medicine and went to bed. And went to sleep. Because I trusted him to God's hand. Because I know who my God is. I know who I believe in. I trust his character. All things. All things work together for good. And none of it's a question mark. It's all stated facts. And then that last great passage. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not even death or famine or nakedness. Nothing can separate us from God. And so this is the text, so to speak, that I have come up with these nine things from. Okay? Now let's look at the nine things. If you're taking notes, write these down. Not that I'm profound, but maybe there'll be hope for you in days to come. <coughs> Nine ways not to waste the death of your daughter. It's a strange title, I know. I asked Amy's permission before I used that. And I don't want it to seem trite and trivial to you. It's not. It's, uh, it's intentional. One, you and, and these things are wider and broader than my experience. So if you've never experienced the death of a daughter... You've experienced some other suffering or will experience some other suffering, so you just insert that. How not to waste the death of my wife? How not to waste the death of my husband? The loss of my job, the financial circumstances I find myself in, how not to waste the sickness that I face, the cancer, the whatever it is. How not to waste these things? This You just put your situation in for these things. You will waste your daughter's death if you do not accept it is it as a good gift from God. You'll waste her death if you don't accept it as a good gift from a loving Heavenly Father. Romans chapter one again or eight one says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I can't see it that God has given me a bad thing. It's a good thing that He's given me. It's not condemnation. It's a loving transformation that he's working out in my life. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 5, James says, Count it all joys, my, count it all joy, my brethren, when you suffer various trials and persecution. Count it all joy, James? you got to be kidding me. I'm supposed to count it joy when catastrophe strikes and my daughter dies when my husband is sick, I'm supposed to count that as joy. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because it's not real. Not because it's not there. Not in denial of the evil that's around us. Why will we not fear the evil that's with us and around us? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me and they strengthen me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. The death of your daughter is but a shadow of death. 
It's one of thousands of shadows of death in this world. It's not real death, see. It's not real death for me. It may feel that way. My experience may scream that it is, but it's not. It's a shadow of death. And God is with us. I quoted that passage to my daughter as she took a few gasps of breath. And when I said, I will fear no evil for you are with me, it wasn't objective truth I was stating to her or to myself or to my wife. It was reality. God was with us. Everyone who was in that room with us, the doctors, the nurses, the people around us, said, I've never experienced a feeling like that. I've presided over other deaths, Dr. Daniel said, but I've never seen one where I really felt like God was in the room. He was with us. See, you'll waste death or sickness or cancer if you refuse to see it as a gift from God. Secondly, you will waste your daughter's death if you focus on the scientific cause rather than God's plan. You'll waste it. See, you can get all wrapped up, and your flesh is going to tell you when you face these struggles to get wrapped up in all of the secondary causes, the disease or whatever it is, you know, that you're facing. The cause, the scientific causes. But see, this is what we should set our focus on. Not on scientific cause, but rather on God's plan. Look at verse, uh, or listen to Psalm 139. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. So you can focus on the scientific cause and reason, or you can focus on God's eternal plan. The plan which knitted together my daughter just the way she was, not as an anomaly, but exactly the way God wanted her made. She wasn't an accident. She wasn't a mistake. She wasn't a genetic um, whatever. They call it. She was a human. She was granted life and a spirit. And before the world was founded, God said, Sophie Ann will live nine minutes. And every one of those minutes I'm going to plan and I'm going to provide for perfectly. Not one instant of her life was a mistake or an accident or an anomaly. He planned every bit of it. 
So just stretch that out. Maybe you're here in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 80s. I don't know where you are in life. What I'm telling you is, is that you can focus on all the reasons secondary around you to what's going on in your life, or you can focus on God's eternal plan and the fact that he has you exactly where he planned for you to be at this moment in your life before the foundation of the world, before you were ever a thought or a breath. He planned it. And what that does for you is take you out of this immediate context and put you into the eternal context which will cause you to worship God no matter your circumstances. Because instead of feeling like you've gotten the raw end of the deal, you'll know I got the deal God wanted for me to have and what he planned for me to have. These things aren't just happening to me. God's bringing them to me, not for my harm, but for my good, so that I'll be like his son. Changes perspective totally. Third thing, you will waste your daughter's death if you do not drink deeply from the well of grief and hope. When I say drink from the well, it's just a, you understand, it's just a phrase to help us understand. You can stay detached from death and you can actually Hold back grief. You have the ability to do that as a human. And what it will do is destroy you. It will destroy you. What you need to do is sit down and get you a bucket of that grief and drink it. You don't need to stare away from death. You need to look it in the face. You need to face it, and you need to deal with it in a godly way, which is why you also drink from the well of hope, which is Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul does not tell the Thessalonians not to grieve. <coughs> See, their loved ones and their friends were dying, and Christ did not come. And that was messing up their theology. And Paul said... Do not grieve as those who have no hope. See, he didn't say don't grieve. What he said is don't grieve like a lost man. Grieve like one who has real hope in Christ. And so that's why I say drink grief and drink hope, both. They both have different but similar purposes in your life. When you grieve, it breaks you down mentally and physically and spiritually to prostrate you before the throne of God. That's what grief does. Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And how can you do that? And if you did the Home Bible Fellowship last time, you heard Piper spin on this, and it's true. The way you become more than a conqueror is you take your enemy, not only defeat it, but then turn it into a tool for God's sanctification in your own life. And so it's very possible, okay, that one of the secondary causes of Sophie's death in my life, and what I had to come to realize, is it could be that God has brought this into my life through the hand of Satan who seeks to sift me like wheat. Okay, that's possible. 
I don't know that's true, but it's very possible. Okay? Satan could have very well been at work in this event thinking he had won a great victory. And he would have won the victory if my focus and my wife's focus had become the circumstance. But he lost all hope of victory when our gaze was on the cross and on Christ and on how this was going to make us more useful in his kingdom. See, then we became more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what he intended for evil now was good. Job was more than a conqueror. He said, Naked I came from my mother, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Bible says he did not in all these things sin against God. In chapter 2, his wife said while he laid there scraping his sores after a second attack from Satan, permitted and commanded by God, by the way, as he scraped his sores, his wife said, Curse God and die. And he said, you speak as one of these foolish women in town. Shall we not receive good and evil from the hand of God? Shall we not receive both of them? In all these things, the Bible says again, God was not charged with wrong by Job, nor did Job sin in his analysis of the situation. And what I'm telling you is, you may say, it sounds bad for you to say God took the life of your Child, and what I'm telling you is that's a biblical perspective. God did take it. He gave it and he took it. Just like when I die, he will have given me life and then taken it back. I'm just choosing not to focus on the secondary causes, but yet the primary cause, God. I don't deny that there are secondary causes. Physical, sinful, satanic. They're all there, I'm sure. But if I look at those, I get frustrated and defeated. Instead, I'll gaze at Christ and find victory and more than conquerors. That's what I'll be. You see the difference? And if you focus on the secondary causes, you'll waste the death of your daughter. You'll waste it. You'll waste your cancer. You'll waste your sickness. You'll waste the death of your husband or your wife. You'll waste your life if you focus on these secondary things. You need to allow yourself to drink grief and hope simultaneously. If you don't, your life will be destroyed. You won't be useful. Four, you'll waste the death of your daughter if you believe in random chance rather than the sovereignty of God. I've touched on that. I won't dwell on it too much. <coughs> but uh, some people during this, you know, people can, I don't know what they're thinking, <laughs> if they're thinking, I actually had someone who said to me, oh boy, it must be hard to believe in the things you believe to lose your daughter. You know, I want to be angry about those kind of things. I really do. But I really just pity the people. I do. I pity them and I feel sorry for them. Because see, what they're insinuating is, is that because I believe in the sovereignty of God that now I must in some way feel like God has harmed me or done something wrong or I've done, you know, or I've become hopeless now. When just the opposite is true. Isaiah 46, verse 8, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. 
I'm God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's strength and encouragement to me. I didn't lose hope in this because of the sovereignty of God. That's all that got me through this in my life. I couldn't have survived this season without a sure foundation of His sovereignty. You will not survive suffering without a sure understanding of the sovereignty of God. You won't survive it. Random chance. No. Sovereignty of God. Five, you will waste your daughter's death if you refuse to think about death. <clears throat> I have people tell me, well, just don't believe what the doctors are telling you. Believe, you know, believe she's going to get better. Just deny all facts and accept what you want happen and it'll happen that sounds nice but that's not biblical did I pray that my daughter would be healed absolutely up until the day she was born every day I prayed and begged God to heal her every time we saw six sonogram pictures during our child's process Sophie's process every time I walked in that door I believed that she was going to have a brain. I did. I believed it. I told Aaron it was hard to go back in time and time again and see that picture unchanged. And the reason it was hard is because I believed God could and had the power to heal her. Up until the time she was dead, He had the power to touch her and give her what she didn't have. I believe it. I still believe it. Even when he took that that, uh, stethoscope and he listened, and you saw the picture of it, did you see the anticipation on our faces as we looked at him? We still believed God could heal her. But I refused to live in a fairy tale. So I faced the, process, the probable death of my daughter head on from the very beginning. I refused to live a fairy tale. Can God heal her? Yes. Will I pray for God to heal her? Absolutely. Will I lose faith if He doesn't? No, I will not. No, I will not. See, you're not going to gain anything from living in a fairy tale. Actually, you're going to be destroyed when the fairy tale doesn't come true. You must live with one foot in the sovereignty of God and one foot in the reality that you're living. That one foot in the sovereignty says He can speak and it'll be done. And so you pray and beg Him, God, please heal and change and save. And the one foot in reality tells you if He doesn't do that, then He hasn't changed and your circumstances will not destroy your faith because He is stronger than your circumstances. And so you face death as a reality. 
Ecclesiastes 7, 2, Solomon says, I would, it is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of joy. Why? Because that's when we will look at our life and take full notice of who we are and how much failure and sin is in our life. The fact is that by facing the reality of death, it challenged me to know what sin is. I understand sin today better than I did six months ago. Sin is ugly. It's destructive. Some of you are here in sin, and you don't see the effect of it today. I've got pictures to show you the effect of sin. It's deforming. It's destructive. And it's a sentence of death. That's reality. I also understand God's forgiveness better today. I understand His grace, His mercy, His love. And I didn't get there by denying the truth of death. I got there by looking death in the face and believing God's Word. You're going to waste the death of your daughter if you do not think about new life in the kingdom. I spent a lot of time in these days reflecting over 1 Corinthians 15, that seed planted in the ground out there at Maple Grove one day will be raised up to a new life. A new life. And I have no idea exactly how that's going to happen, but I will tell you this, my nearest thoughts and comfort come from the fact that I believe that even now my daughter is growing up in the kingdom of God. She's maturing. She's being trained and taught by Christ Himself. And I believe in the kingdom she will reach a moment of understanding, of grace. She'll know that she's a sinner. She'll know she has no right to heaven. And she'll know that only by Christ can she be saved. And she'll believe in Him. Fully. And she'll be saved. That's comforting to think about. See, I don't think she hyperlinked from an infant to a, a, a fully understanding person in the kingdom. I think she grows there. She has a full experience of what it means to trust Christ for salvation. She's not in the kingdom I came to understand better because she died young. She's in the kingdom because of Christ. She's not in the kingdom because she wasn't a sinner. She's in the kingdom because God has washed away her sin. She's not in the kingdom because of who I am or who Amy is. She's in the kingdom because of God's eternal purpose and plan. And that drove me not to take for granted that she would be in the kingdom, but I prayed and asked God for her salvation daily. And you should also for your children even unborn children. I laid my hands on the womb of my wife every day, sometimes more than once, and I begged God to save her from her sins. Now, you can call that covenantal, or you can call that whatever you want to call it. I don't really care. It's the truth. 
Do not presume on God's grace. Do not presume that he, you have a right because you die young to go to heaven. She doesn't have a right to go to heaven. She's a sinner. I beg God for salvation for my daughter. And it brings me great comfort today. And it will in the future. You'll waste the death of your daughter if you turn inward instead of building better and more affectionate relationships to the outside. Epaphroditus was dying. He was sick. And Paul said, Epaphroditus in his sickness turned to the thoughts of the Philippians. He turned outward, not inward. Grief will make you want to turn inside. Don't do it. Turn outward. I've lived such public life in front of you because I'm afraid of doing this. It's easy to crawl in a hole and cry and moan and weep for myself. But that's not the right thing to do in the moment of suffering. The right thing to do is to turn outward and love people more deeply than you ever have before. That's the right thing to do. To be concerned for them and not yourself. You're going to waste the death of your daughter if you do not examine the nature and the destructiveness of sin. And finally, you're going to waste the death of your daughter if you do not use her death to expand the reach of the gospel. As we were in Gatlinburg this week, Amy and I were up late one night, (coughs) and we were talking and reflecting and crying and praying about all these things. And she said to me, the worst thing we can do is be the way we were before this happened. The worst thing we can do is continue to live the same kind of lives we lived before this. It's the most dishonoring thing we can do. She's exactly right. That not only would dishonor Sophie and mean that she was meaningless, it would dishonor Christ more importantly because he brought her into our life to change us. And so if we're unchanged, then it was meaningless. We will not be the same people by the grace of God that we were before. Christ said to his disciples, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. The death of my daughter has been a great opportunity for me to bear witness of Christ. And it will continue to be that for me and my family. Now, your suffering has that same potential. The question is, will you suffer that way? Will you suffer in Christ? Will you suffer with an eye towards the kingdom and not yourself? Will you suffer so that others might know Christ better? What will you be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? See, it's a waste to go through what we've been through for the last six months and be just like we were before and to not expand the gospel into all the world. I I have been reinvigorated 
to be a pastor because of the last six months. It's a new sense of purpose. In Gatlinburg, I was buying a cup of coffee. I love coffee. You know that about me. <laughs> I don't know. This guy was standing there, and he had his three kids, and they walked off, and he was talking about his kids. and We just struck up a conversation. He said, how many children do you have? And without really even thinking, I said, two. You know? And then I stopped. And I said, no, I said, um, I'm sorry. I know this sounds crazy, but I have three children. You know, he's thinking, this guy's sick, you know. He's 30 years old and he can't remember his child. I said, actually, Saturday we buried our daughter. She lived nine minutes. I mean, he was shocked, just, you know, mouth dropped, as you can imagine, embarrassed apologizing and I said I want to ask you one question when your child dies and you put him in the ground how are you going to survive how are you going to make it what are you going to lean on who are you going to believe in he said I don't know how I'd survive I said I can tell you there is but one way His name is Jesus Christ. And as I shared the gospel to that man, I know it's sentimentality of a father. But I could hear my little girl excited in heaven that the gospel was going forth. I could hear her In my mind, I know it was just in my mind, but I could hear saying, that's right, Daddy. That's right. He can't make it without Jesus. I couldn't make it without Jesus. Nobody can make it without Jesus. I want to promise you this. We will not waste the death of our daughter. And my prayer for you as a congregation is that you won't waste your suffering. Because if you do, it's a travesty. And it's a shame to God and to Jesus Christ. Don't waste it. Turn it outward for the gospel and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, you're glorified in us when we find our joy in you and you alone. And so our joy is not wrapped up in our families, the idols that we so often turn to, our children, our wife, our husband, our work, all these things, these idols in our life, they're real They're real idols, God. Your joy is not in that we will find joy in those things. Your joy is when we find our ultimate and satisfaction, complete satisfaction in you. And so, God, I thank you for this season of life which has caused me to really believe that my help comes from the Lord This season that has caused me to know that my heart, my flesh, my daughter, my family, my work will fail me, but you will never fail. God, I praise your name for these things. And I pray right now for those who are in this place. God, those who are suffering and those who will suffer in the future, I pray for them that they will turn outward and they will turn towards you and the kingdom. 
in their suffering and that through that they will have grief with hope and the world will say, I want what they have. Make us a witness for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.